Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast for Salem Heights Church. We meet weekly at 9 and 11 a.m. For more information, visit SalemHeightsChurch.org. Well, if you have your Bible, I'd invite you to grab it and open it to Daniel chapter 3 this morning. Daniel chapter 3. We're going to be continuing in our study of the book of Daniel. And uh, this morning is a familiar passage, but I believe there's something that God wants us to, to focus on this morning. As you're finding your way to Daniel chapter 3, I want to ask you a question. I want a little audience participation just to start off. How many of you in the room have ever been skydiving? Okay, not, okay, probably 10, 15 people in here. How many of you want to skydive at some point? <laughs> okay, all right. I just heard nope. <laughs> How about this? For those of you who are kind of on the fence, what if I offered to pay for you to go skydiving? Would you go? Raise your hands. Okay. I mean, there are some people that if it's free, they'll do it, right? What if I told you that after the service today, we're going to head over, you and I are going to go over to the Salem airport, I have a plane waiting, an instructor waiting, all the gear, we're going to go skydiving today. Would you go? Okay, this is hypothetical. Don't get your hopes up. Now, some of you would still be nervous, but you'd say, maybe, okay, I, sounds like a, an incredible opportunity, a once-in-a-lifetime offer. But some of you are still not certain. But what if I were to tell you that every year, 350,000 people make over 3 million skydive attempts? Attempts. Now, again, <laughs> but, but don't, don't worry. Over the last 10 years, on average, worldwide, there's only been 21.3 deaths from skydiving. So it's safe. It's safe. Trust me, it's safe. We can do this. So perhaps I would tell you that, hey, this is a, this is a safe thing. You know, it, it's, I mean, it, people do it all the time. You're going to take off in a plane with me. We're going to head towards the coast. And we're going to get to a nice, comfortable cruising altitude of about 14,000 feet. And then the door is going to open up. And we are going to jump. Is there anybody in the room whose palms get a little bit sweaty even looking at a picture like that? Now, this should be obvious, but you should decide whether or not you're going to jump when the door opens before you get to that moment. That decision should be made on the ground. Because when that plane opens up and you are flying high and you look down, it's a surreal moment, I'm sure, to see that the ground, the earth, safety is that far below and you're about to jump out of a plane to get to it. But in that moment, you would face a moment of truth. Collins Dictionary defines a moment of truth as an important time when you must make a decision quickly and whatever you decide will have important consequences in the future. These moments are often scary and overwhelming. But what you do in that moment, in the plane, will reveal three things. It will reveal if you trust your instructor. It will reveal if you trust their word. And it will reveal if you trust the equipment. And I think the same is true for us, spiritually speaking. All of us will face moments of truth in our life if we're going to follow Jesus. We're going to face a moment where we have to make a decision quickly because perhaps we weren't anticipating it or it caught us off guard. But we have a moment of truth where there are, there are two clear paths to stand with the Lord or to stand 
with the world. And in that moment, the decision we make will have implications in our future. These moments are choices for us to stand with God or to compromise. They can be a moment where you are tempted. It could be in a moment when there's an invitation from someone to to join them in something. It could be in a moment when you are confronted for believing what you believe. Or it could be in a moment where you're actually being condemned for what you stand on. And in that moment, you will have a choice. Will I stand with the Lord or will I fold? Our actions in those moments, spiritually speaking, reveal three things about us. Do we trust our creator? Do we trust his word? And do we trust his provision? I got to believe that this week there's been some moments of truth in all of our lives. You might think it's, it could only be big confrontations out publicly seen by other people, but these moments of truth can happen in the privacy of our home when nobody else is around. When we're watching TV or on the internet or having an interaction with our family, a moment of truth where we can either stand with the Lord and follow in obedience His Word and His Holy Spirit, or we can choose to stand for our flesh, with our flesh, or stand with the world, or to give in to something that they're trying to draw us into. In Daniel chapter 3, we see Daniel's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, face a moment of truth. And how they respond in this chapter and in this story is one of the greatest displays of faith in the whole Bible. But I believe their faithfulness was not an impulse that they happened to get right in that moment. But it was a choice that was made before the moment arrived that was rooted in a fear of the Lord. I've entitled this morning's message, A Fear-Filled Faith. On the surface, that sounds kind of like a contradiction because, you know, obviously we often think of faith as the lack of fear. I'm courageous, I'm bold, I have faith. And yet I believe that what the Bible teaches us is that those who truly have faith are filled with fear, but not the fear that we would might think of. It's a fear of the Lord. It's in the Bible all over the place. Many verses talk about the importance See, we've said before, as we've been studying this book of Daniel, the book of Daniel is 12 chapters long. And the first six chapters are a historical narrative talking about this man, Daniel, who was in exile in Babylon, whom God used because of his faithfulness. And his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, are mentioned in a couple of the chapters. We're going to hear about them today. But the point of these stories in the first half of Daniel isn't for us to walk away from church in the morning and go, I just got to be more courageous this week. I got to dare to be a Daniel. I got to stand up and face the world. No, I think it is to fear God. I think the whole point of these first six chapters is to see God's sovereignty and say, I'm going to bow to him and I'm going to serve him first and only. Some may think that courageous faith is the absence of fear, but it's actually the result of the right kind of fear, the fear of the Lord. I love this definition for the fear of the Lord that one pastor gave. He said, the fear of the Lord is a radical God-centeredness that shapes everything else in life. That you build your life on God. You take God more seriously than anything else, whether that's other priorities or the opinions of people in your life. And so what I'd like for us to do this morning in our few moments together is consider 
this, that we shouldn't be walking around with a fearful faith, but a fear-filled faith. Because a fear-filled faith is a fearless faith. Now, I know that's a lot of Fs, but it's true. Now, typically we stand up and we read a passage of scripture, but what I'm going to attempt to do in our short time together is to work us through all 30 verses. And so I'm going to have you guys remain seated and we're going to start in verse one and we're going to read through this. And I want to pull out just a couple of observations and see what the Lord will do in our hearts and our minds with these truths that he has given us in his word. So hopefully you found yourself in Daniel chapter three. We're going to start in verse one. If you're ready, say ready. ready. This is the word of the Lord. It says King Nebuchadnezzar, made a gold statue 90 feet high and nine feet wide. And he set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. King Nebuchadnezzar sent word to assemble the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces to attend the declaration of the statue King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So the satraps, perfects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces assembled for the dedication of the statue the king had set up. Then they stood before the statue Nebuchadnezzar Nebuchadnezzar had set up. A herald loudly proclaimed, people of every nation and language, you are commanded when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, drum, and every kind of music, you are to fall face down and worship the gold statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. But whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. Therefore, when all the people heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and every kind of music, people of every nation and language fell down and worshiped the gold statue that Nebuchadnezzar had built. Now, some Chaldeans took this occasion to come forward and maliciously accuse the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, may the king live forever. You as king have issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, drum, and every kind of music must fall down and worship the gold statue. Whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into the furnace of blazing fire. Now there are some Jews you have appointed to manage the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men have ignored you, the king, and they do not serve your gods or worship the gold statue you have set up. Then in a furious rage, Nebuchadnezzar gave orders to bring in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king. Nebuchadnezzar asked them, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, is it true that you don't serve my gods or worship the gold statue I've set up? Now here we, we're going to pause for just a second. What do we see here? I think it'd be really quick and easy for us to just kind of jump over this, this first part of the chapter where we see Nebuchadnezzar and we, and we see what he's doing and we want to kind of jump ahead and see the faith and this amazing kind of courage and fearlessness that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have. But I, I don't want us to breeze over what we see here in King Nebuchadnezzar because I think there's something that, that you and I can actually recognize in his life and identify with. And I think it's something that we need to be aware of. Because the first thing I think that is kind of highlighted in these first 15 verses is the folly of the king. You see, Nebuchadnezzar thought he could thwart God's plans. Now, if you remember last week in chapter two, Nebuchadnezzar has this dream and he calls in all of his magicians and all of his interpreters and he, and he makes a command. He says, you guys will need to interpret this dream for me. And none of them could do it. And then the Lord uses Daniel and gives Daniel the ability to interpret Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And Daniel gives Nebuchadnezzar an accurate interpretation of what he had dreamt. 
And in that dream, he had seen a statue built and it had a head of gold. And, and, and then, but there were other parts of the body that were made from different metals and, and clay. And what Daniel had told the king was that he was this head of gold, that he was supreme, that he was the, the, the greatest leader at that time. But as he continued to interpret the dream, he told Nebuchadnezzar, but, but your kingdom will not last forever. In fact, there's going to be many kingdoms that come after you. And he begins to kind of identify those kingdoms and what will happen to them. But ultimately, a God, the God of heaven would come and establish his kingdom. And his kingdom would last forever and never be destroyed. And in chapter 2, verse 45, Daniel says to Nebuchadnezzar, the great God has told the king what will happen in the future. The dream is certain and its interpretation reliable. But what we read here is Nebuchadnezzar is a pretty stubborn guy. Because at the end of chapter two, he's like, man, this is amazing. Your God is the God of gods. He's the Lord of kings. He was the one, your God was able to give you this ability to interpret this dream. Nobody else could interpret this dream. And we see kind of this, this promotion of Daniel and his three friends into pretty prominent positions as Jewish men, exiles in Babylon. He, he raises them up and puts them into significant roles because of how God had used them. But then at the very beginning, just, I mean, a few verses later, as we start chapter three, Nebuchadnezzar does what? He builds a statue 90 feet high and nine feet wide. And he calls everybody to come to this place and to bow down and to worship it. See, I think what's happening here is that Nebuchadnezzar in his arrogance said, okay, this dream you said was just going to be a head of gold and my kingdom was going to be temporary, but I, I don't accept that. I don't accept that plan for my life, God. No, no, I'm going to build a statue that's going to be completely gold. I'm making a statement by doing that. My kingdom will not end. My kingdom is going to be the greatest kingdom of them all. And so he calls everybody. We see here in verse 4, the herald proclaims, people of every nation and language, you are commanded this. He's saying to the known world that I am over, come here I'm going to make you pledge your allegiance to me. I think the worship here that he's asking them to do is not to necessarily just worship him as a God. I think it's, it's to worship him as the, the sovereign. To, to come along and to say, I worship, I worship Nebuchadnezzar. I see him as the greatest. He is the sovereign one. So how do you and I do the same? What do we see in Nebuchadnezzar's life that we might be able to relate to? Well, I think there are times where you and I read God's word or we hear God's word preached or proclaimed to us or we have somebody come to us in love and confront us with the word of God to speak to a specific sin issue in our life and we hear God speak and we say, I reject that. I want to choose another way. And those of us who have been Christians are not uh, kind of exempt from this because what I think we can do is we can know God's word, we can hear God's word, and we can begin to have a Burger King theology. We want it our way. We'll take most of God, but we're going to leave this part out. I'm going to make a God of my own choosing. 
And I can, I can be really good at kind of cloaking my behaviors and some of these things that God wouldn't approve of because I can try to point and highlight all the things that I do in accordance to God's word. But really what I'm doing is if I reject anything of God, I rejected God altogether. And what we see over and over in the book of Daniel, but also throughout the word of God, is that it is foolish, it is folly to think that you and I can create truth outside of God's word. Folks, people are telling us that there is truth that is outside of God's word. We live in a world that says there is truth that it doesn't come from God's word. It's come from man's heart, his desires, and it is just as reliable, just as valid, needs to be respected and accepted just as God's word is for you. It's not true. In fact, it has been this way since the Garden of Eden. Where the serpent whispers to Eve, did God really say? He just doesn't want you to see as he sees. Just trying to to feed us this lie that there's actually another way. There's actually another truth. There's actually another life outside of God, and it's better than the life that God has for you. And we begin to hear that, that lie. All these thousands of years later, we hear that lie, and if we are not ready for it, that moment of truth, we will find ourselves folding and catering to something that is not for our good. It is for our destruction. Psalm 14, one says, it is a fool who says in his heart, there is no God. And you might say, oh, Pastor Pete, I'm not that bold. I'm not that arrogant. I'm not that rebellious. I've never told God he doesn't exist. What I'm saying is when we begin to accept truth that is outside of God's word, we are in our actions and in our hearts saying, I do not submit to your sovereignty. You are not the God. You're a God. We can't skip over that because Daniel put it in here to highlight that Nebuchadnezzar had been told by Daniel on behalf of God, this dream is certain, it will happen, and it is reliable. You should live your life based on what God is saying. And he says, nope, I'm going to try to make my own way. Do you ever do that? I know I have. Or it becomes really clear what God wants to do, and I'm just not wanting to do that. I want to do this. And yeah, it says it's a fool who seeks after his own desires, who thinks that he can build up a house that will stand. It can't. It won't. And I know right now that in some of our hearts, you're hearing this saying here because the word of God is confronting us all. It starts with me. And we in our, in our flesh say, I hate that claim. How dare you tell me that if I don't believe everything that God says and I don't live only for him, that I am not being faithful to him. He is saying, there's only one God. And Nebuchadnezzar says, there is a God. I've acknowledged that there's a God. In fact, I have no problem with you worshiping your God, but here's my problem. You also need to worship me. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are called out by some Chaldeans who are jealous and they say, they're these Jews. They, they didn't bow down. And Nebuchadnezzar knows these men and he calls them to 
his attention, calls him to his presence. And, and we read there that he said, is it true that you have not bowed down to this, this God? And what we see in this next section in verses 16 through 18 is the faith of these three men. So Nebuchadnezzar thinks he's, he's going to be gracious. In fact, this is actually kind of a little bit out of character for who he is. He gives them a second chance. And in verse 15, it says, Now if you're ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, drum, and every kind of music, fall down and worship the statue I made. But if you don't worship it, you will immediately be thrown into the furnace of blazing fire. And catch this next statement that he makes. He doubles down on his sovereignty. And who is the God that can rescue you from my power? I love these next three verses. They're right in the middle of the chapter. I think it's, it's where we're going to kind of camp for a few minutes. But listen to their response. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to give you an answer to this question. Now, before you think that they're like yelling and screaming and foaming at the mouth and in a fighting position, let's hold that opinion. It says in verse 17, if the God we serve exists, then he can rescue us from the furnace of blazing fire and he can rescue us from the power of you, the king. Uh, this, this is probably what they're saying here is not if, like they're in doubt. Well, if he exists, you know, we've kind of, this is what we've decided and so we're hoping it works out. No, he's saying, if God is willing, he can. He can, he can rescue us from the fire. He can save us from you. Why? Listen to this. But even if he does not rescue us, we want you as king to know that we will not serve your gods or worship the gold statue you set up. Why did this make Nebuchadnezzar so furious? Why was he so upset? I think it's because it wasn't because they served God. He had already acknowledged God's power and authority at the end of chapter two. I think it's because they refused to acknowledge his authority. And so he tries to intimidate them. Who's going to rescue you if you don't listen to me? Who do you think you are? But here's the thing. He tries to use intimidation to, to scare them into it. But what he doesn't realize is that these three men had a greater fear than the fear of Nebuchadnezzar. You see, their allegiance to God was based on who God was, not on what he'd do. They weren't motivated by what their obedience would produce for them, but they were motivated by their respect and admiration and appreciation and love for God. This is, this is what it is, because they say here, you know, God, if he's willing, he can rescue us, but even if he doesn't, we will not bow down. Why? Because he is the only God worthy of being worshiped. He is the only one. And because of that, we don't know. I mean, he can rescue us. I think that they probably had an idea that, he, that God might. God had already been doing some pretty incredible things in their, their midst. But even if he doesn't, we know that he's the only one that's going to get our praise. I love this quote from Oswald Chambers. He says this, The remarkable thing about God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. Whereas if you do not fear God, you fear everything else. I think that in, this is true in our day, that if we are walking around fearful and worried, it's because we are standing and, and we're living in a world where it has become evidently clear that we have very little control 
over anything. And if we're focused on things to give us comfort and security and things to kind of to make us feel like we have control and then that control is ripped away, where does it leave us in life? It leaves us hopeless, bound by this, this, this feeling of like, what am I going to do? And so if we do not fear God, we're going to find ourselves fearing everything else because we're going to want to be able to control it. But reality is going to keep telling us we have little ability to control and manipulate and get everything to do what we want to do. And we're going to live in that fear constantly. Even if you are able to say, well, I'm pretty successful and I've got the financial means to kind of cover all my bases and I haven't really been hit too hard over the pandemic. And, you know, I think I've got this kind of figured out. I'm going to tell you, there's a fear that exists in that false sense of security because those who think they've achieved are constantly worried about how do I maintain this? How do I keep it from going away? And there is no rest in that person's life. But if we fear God, nothing else scares us. Now again, we're not talking about fear like, oh, I, I hope he's not mad at me. It's this fear of like, I respect him. I, I, I'm, I'm amazed by him. I, I want to be near him. I want to go towards him because he is God. So we see the faith of this man that this that I believe was was forged in their lives before this moment. They had already made the decision to serve God and nobody else. And when the moment came, that moment of truth didn't impact them like it would someone who had never thought about this possibility. When it came, they were ready to respond. We already know what we're gonna do. We're gonna serve God. Period. I was listening to another preacher um, highlight. He was kind of writing uh, some thoughts on Daniel chapter three. And, and he said this, he said, hear this, nothing has changed today. In our Babylon, he's talking about America, faith in Jesus is not the problem. It's our insistence that he is the only way of salvation and our only source of authority that is. You will never get in trouble for saying Jesus is your personal savior, but you will when you say there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved and that he alone sets the rules about what is right and not right about sex and marriage, morality and money. You can have your Christian convictions, but keep them in the closet because the moment you fail to bow down in homage where you are supposed to, the fiery furnace awaits. And we're feeling that as the church. We're feeling, we're being confronted by the world saying, yeah, you can have your Christianity, but you have to believe and affirm these other views of truth. And if you don't, there's a furnace waiting for you. So you can have your faith, but bow down to what we say is true. Bow down to what we're saying is great. If our fear of man is greater than our fear of God, then we are destined to fold. But these men didn't bow. And we read the last point that I want to highlight. We see now in the, in the, the response, what God does. We see the providence of God. Verse 19, would you follow along with me? It says, Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with rage, and the expression on his face changed towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he gave orders to heat the furnace seven times more than the, was customary. And he commanded some of the best soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the furnace of blazing fire. So these men in their trousers, robes, head coverings, and other clothes were tied up and thrown into the furnace of blazing fire. 
Since the king's command was so urgent and the furnace, it was extremely hot, the raging flames killed those men who carried Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego up. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the furnace of blazing fire. Then King Nebuchadnezzar jumped up in alarm and he said to his advisor, didn't we throw three men bound into the fire? Yes, of course, your majesty, they replied to the king. He exclaimed, look, I see four men not tied, walking around the fire unharmed, and the fourth looks like the son of the gods. So Nebuchadnezzar, he gives these men, I mean, he thinks he's being uh, overly gracious to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt that you didn't hear the rules, and that's why you didn't bow. So here, I'm going to give you another chance. And he does it, and they say, we're not going to bow. And it made him even more mad. And we see now this, what happens to the heart that is trying to set up its own kingdom. It doubles down and goes to battle with the sovereign God of the universe. Oh yeah, you don't think? You think there's a God that can rescue you from my power? Let me show you how great my power is. When it says he gave them the command to heat it seven times hotter, that's saying make it as hot as possible. And what Nebuchadnezzar did not see in his arrogance and pride and in his selfish desire to build his own kingdom is that all he did by making it hotter was make God's stage grander. (laughs) Nebuchadnezzar's power equals seven times as hot as possible. God's power, they won't even be affected at all. Look what it goes on to say. Nebuchadnezzar approached the door of the furnace of the blazing fire, verse 26, and called Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you servants of the Most High God, come out. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire. And when the satraps, prefects, governors, and the king's advisors gathered around, listen to this, they saw the fire had no effect on the bodies of these men. Not a hair of their heads was singed. Their robes were unaffected and there was no smell of fire on them. The Lord's deliverance didn't leave them smoldering and singed. It left them safe and sound. This world is rough. This world is not easy to live in as a Christian. Again, we are being confronted all the time to to change what God's word says, to to not stand on this truth, to make accommodations and exceptions and to accept other truths as equally valid as God's word. And we're being singled out and marginalized for trying to stand with the Lord. And sometimes it might feel like if we're going to stand with him, that, you know, he'll, he's promised to get us through to heaven, but we're going to end up coming into heaven and our clothes are going to smell like smoke. We're going to be kind of tattered. We're going to stumble in. But man, we made it across the finish line. That's not how God's providence works. If God chooses to deliver you, he's going to do it safe and sound. Now, this isn't a prescription. This, isn't, this doesn't say, hey, if you take a stand, then God's going to deliver you like he delivered Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Because in Hebrews chapter 11, I would encourage you to take time to read that chapter again this week and lie to Daniel 3. We see what we call, uh, many commentators call the hall of faith. It's this list of all these people we see throughout scripture who had faith and God looked at their faith and counted them justified, righteous because of their faith and obedience to God. But at the very end of the chapter, the, the author is very clear to let us know that, but not everyone got out of their predicament. And he starts to list that there were people who had faith, and yet 
They died for their faith. And yet, they were approved before the Lord. But I don't want us to, to finish today without highlighting the fact that in verse 25, Nebuchadnezzar makes a really important realization. He says, he exclaimed, look, I see four men not tied walking around in the fire unharmed, and the fourth looks like the Son of God. Did you see the fourth man? Did you notice the fourth man as we were reading? Did you, that's an important part because what we understand from Scripture is that this wasn't just an angel. This wasn't just a kind of a figment of his imagination. No, this was the pre-incarnate Christ who had been come down to walk with them and to protect them, to minister to them in the fire. Charles Spurgeon says this, we must go into the furnace if we would have the nearest and dearest dealings with Christ Jesus. What do we take away from this? God's providence is grand and we can trust God with our lives and, and he responds to those who are faithful who say, I'm putting my whole dependence upon you. He never goes, oh, well, I'll see if I can get to that. He is, he is near. And so the question for us this morning is, will you fear God more than the fire? Rodney Stortz in his commentary said this, biblical faith has the assurance to say, I know my God is able to deliver me. It has the confidence to say, I believe that my God will deliver me. But it also has the submission to say, but even if he does not, I will still trust him. Where do you need to step out in faith this week and trust God? to stop trying to do it your own way, but to say, my God can if he wills, but if he doesn't, I will still trust him. What is it that you're trying to, to control? What is it that you're trying to create on your own strength, on your own power? What is it that you're saying, God, I will serve you here, but this is mine. I, I can't trust you with this. I can't hand this over to you. I'm gonna do this on my own because I have to carry this through. How's that going for you, by the way? But like Nebuchadnezzar, we can double down on that and say, but no, there, I just, there's no other way. I have no other options. I got to do this on my own. I can't let go of this. I can't trust this to anybody else. What God is calling out to us through Scripture says, can I, can I show you through a story that I'm greater than your problem? I'm greater than those who are oppressing you. Will you allow me to provide? Christ joined these three men in the furnace and he stepped into reality and he went to the cross on our behalf so that in him we could come through that judgment which he bore himself, the judgment for all the sins of mankind, your sins and my sins and the sins of everybody. He bore them on the cross for us so that he took that judgment and you and I can come out of that through faith in Christ delivered, unharmed by the consequence of sin because he paid it all. If Christ was willing to come and die on the cross for our sins and to take everything for us so that we could be delivered from the greatest penalty, the greatest problem that we would ever face, why won't we trust him with the rest of our lives? We were talking this week as a staff about a verse in Galatians chapter 3 that says, are you so foolish, Galatians, that you thought that the thing that was started by the Spirit was supposed to be carried out in the flesh? How's your fear? There's really only two options. 
We're either living in fear because we don't have a right fear of God, or we're living fearless because our faith is fear-filled. Would you pray with me? Father God, there's so much going on in our world right now. So much going on in our lives. So much that is testing our faith and and causing us to, to make a choice, a moment of truth. Will we trust you, Father? God, we're so thankful for the gift of your son, Jesus. We're so thankful for the hope that we have, that it's not a wishful hope, but it's a confidence that because Christ came and died on the cross for our sins and was risen three days later, that we know that our faith in him is not in vain, that it is put in something that actually can stand the test of time. And so now we don't live as people that need to live in fear. You have not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and of a sound mind that says, I don't need to be anxious. I don't need to be worried. I'm going to stand with God because I fear him more than anything else. So Father God, I pray that you would help us as we face these moments of truth, as we face trials, as we face the struggle and the hardship of trying to live as a Christian today, would you call us to be faithful to you? Would you call us to have a fear for you that says when that moment comes, it's not a matter about who I will trust. It's a matter of what is he calling me to trust? God, allow us to have a fear of you that is greater than the fear of the fire and know that you will never leave us alone need your help, Father. We love you. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.